There was a day in our broader society where biblical standards could be appealed to in a discussion. But today on Belonging and Becoming, Asbury University President Dr. Kevin Brown argues that more than ever, the most convincing argument is how we live our lives. And that's going to make us look a little different. And I think that that's a good thing. I I love the Flannery O'Connor, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. On today's edition of Belonging and Becoming, Dr. Kevin Brown explores the question of what role lives of refreshing vital holiness can play in today's world. I'm your host, Asbury University Media Communication Professor, Doug Walker. Grab a cup of coffee and join us as we listen to the second part of our interview with Dr. Brown. I'm reading a book right now on the, the sociology of uh, Philip Reeve, who I think has since passed away. One of the, the things in his sociology is talking about first and second and third worlds, and not third world as we would think of it today, uh, like an underdeveloped uh, country or society. First worlds for him are characterized by myths and this kind of um, uh, gods or paganism that that still transcends our culture. So praying to gods or Greek gods who are going to consult the oracle at Delphi, this would be an example of, of a first world context. A second world context is characterized by faith in God, primarily understood through religious tradition, uh, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. So there, there's an organized religion. And notice that first and second world still have, have some idea of a transcendent reality, a standard outside of ourselves by which we we try to apprehend in order to correctly navigate the world. A third world would deny a sacred order. It's kind of, uh, I'm using air quotes, graduated <laughs> out of out of these first and second world understandings. In the the words of the philosopher Charles Taylor, it's an imminent frame. Uh, In this culture, there is no external standard outside of us. We are the standard for our own standards. And the reason I think this is really important is because uh, it's not like any culture is a first or a second or a third in these nice discrete buckets. Uh, Rather, there's, there's overlapping trends here. But we might imagine some time ago a discussion like slavery. Um, which was a very contentious discussion. But oftentimes, that discussion would take place in a second world context. And what I mean by that is trying to understand the institution of slavery by appealing to Scripture, by appealing to religious tradition. Now, obviously, I think there's a correct way to make that appeal, and, and I think that pastors and and individuals that try to justify slavery through the Christian tradition, I just find that utterly repugnant and abhorrent. But the point was, the argument took place by making an appeal to some kind of transcendent standard, uh, and in U.S. tradition, for example, that could be the Bible. I think what we're seeing today is not arguments that occur within the second culture, but arguments that occur between second and third culture. And that's a really important point, um, because there is no longer an external standard by which to adjudicate dilemmas. So we see today that someone might make an appeal to Scripture, but if you're, if you're doing that to a certain segment of society, they're like, I don't care. 
uh, that's nice for you, but that that that's not where I'm drawing the line on how to evaluate moral action or ethical behavior. I've talked before about this bumper sticker, Christians are just like you, but forgiven. I've not seen that around as much, but I, I mention it because in addition to just being bad theology, I think that also kind of speaks to a certain spirit of the age. Hey, I'm just like you, but I'm forgiven. I've prayed something, and so we might call this a kind of justification without any any other desire to live a life that looks different from others, just like everyone else, uh, but I'm forgiven. And again, I think that's very problematic and offensive, perhaps, even to others. I remember also having a conversation uh, some time ago with, with someone, and they had been pressed on, show me someone that lives a holy life. You say holiness is what God wants. Show me someone that lives a holy life. And this person responded by saying, I don't need to show you. It's in the Bible. Now, I understand what they mean by that statement, but that will fall flat. That will mean nothing when we have this kind of integrated second and third world understanding. Point being, whether it's the bumper sticker, whether it's, it doesn't matter if people can live it out or not, it's in scripture. This, this do as I say, not as I do theology, this will at best fall flat. So in this, in this mix of second and third world sensibilities, we make our argument we present our case by how we live and conduct our lives, by actually trying to be saintly, uh, not in a pretentious way, but in a humble way uh, to live the way Christ desired for us to live. We aren't set apart to be away from culture. Yes. <laughs> We're set apart, but in culture. Mm -hmm. So what suggestions do you have in terms of how we live this life of holiness while not disappearing, stepping out of the culture we're in? Yes, great, great question. That's the question. I have quoted, and I'm sure even on this podcast, the Gypsy Smith quote, um, the British evangelist, there are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian, and most people will never read the first four. And I love that because our life is its own Gospel, how we, we live our lives. Uh, in Corinthians, I love Paul says, do I, do I need letters of recommendation from you or to you? No, you're the letter. You are the living, breathing, walking, talking letter of recommendation for the way, uh, for, for this Christ-following Christian way. And so I think it's very important to kind of return to that sensibility. Steve Deneff, uh, who's spoken at, at Asbury several times, he is a, a pastor for the College Wesleyan Church at Indiana Wesleyan. And several years ago, he did a sermon series on Proverbs, and it was excellent. But toward the beginning, he said, we're, we're entering an age, or we're in an age, where people don't really care about your thoughts on right and wrong anymore. Rather, they're asking a different question, does it work? And I think that we need to demonstrate by our lives that this works. This allows us to do several things. One, it creates a different kind of plausibility structure, and that's a, that's a word used by the sociologist Peter Berger. And all that means is it's a system of meaning. For example, I heard a story of a friend of mine wanted to take his kids to the Dominican Republic years ago, but where they were going had no internet. And his, it's not that his kids didn't want to go, it's that they could not even imagine 
Uh, they had no plausibility structure. That was not a plausible idea. Uh, and so when we when we talk about the Christian life and fullness, um, that idea, the way we live it out, even makes it a plausible idea. I loved your comment or your question earlier. Who are people in our lives that when we heard the message of holiness, it was plausible because we saw it lived out. We knew other people that exhibited this this idea. I think insofar as what we do, I think it can be those kind of head-scratching practices, attitudes, sensibilities that, that we exhibit in the world around us. So we talked about Augustine's idea of sin being the heart curved inward. Those who live outward, living for God, living for others, well, that's extraordinary today. Having a missional reflex wanting and desiring to serve others. That's extraordinary today. Being a peacemaker uh, that, that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, oh my heavens, uh, in this kind of toxic age and the, the fractured discourse where you make a statement that even smells political, you spread the room, being a peacemaker, being someone that pulls others together, being able to entertain and be charitable toward an idea, being hu- humble with your own ideas, that's extraordinary today. So there are a whole host of different ways we can live and govern our lives that can be a plausibility structure for something different. But I think my point is uh, we live that holiness out. We make the case for our faith through the way we live and not simply through the words that we use. Amen. I, I want to end up back where we started and with the question of why holiness, but before we do that, are there any other elements to, uh, to holiness as we try to live it out in our current culture, uh, as you watch students learning about this process? Are there other elements that would be important for us to discuss? There is, there is one thing, I mean, we could talk for hours about this. There is one thing I want to focus in on. When we ask this question, what do Christians have that others may not? I, I often hear the answer, peace. And I used to struggle with that answer. I didn't like that answer. I don't, when I get into traffic and uh, I, I can turn type A, um, just I, I don't feel very peaceful. I'm incredibly impatient. My mind immediately goes to how can I beat traffic and I ignore whatever conversation I may be in. And I don't see a lot of peace sometimes with other fellow travelers, if you will. I was talking to my brother-in-law about this years ago, but he said, I don't think that's a good good definition of peace. Peace is not this constant perpetual state of contentedness and bliss, as if you're on some kind of drug and you're just careless to the world. Peace, he said, means you're done looking. You're done searching. Augustine's idea of love is that love was meant to bind, and actually in binding to the thing it was meant to be bound to, and the heart finding unity with the beloved, we experience this deep satisfaction, which runs against the current of our modern understanding of consumerism, uh, that freedom uh, is actually not in binding, it's not in attaching myself to something, it's in uh, ever-expanding choices, being unencumbered. And there was a, a, a poem, um, I, I'm one of those weird people in college, I, I majored in business, but I like poetry, so uh, I can't quite figure that out. But 
Emily Dickinson has one of her more famous poems is called Wild Nights. And it, it goes, wild nights, wild nights, where I with thee, wild nights would be our luxury, futile the wind to a heart and port, done with the compass, done with the chart, rowing in Eden, ah, the sea, might I but more tonight in thee? So the, the poem has this strong sexual tone, actually. It's very erotic, but the, the classical understanding of eros meant something more like yearning. And this second stanza in her poem, futile the winds to a heart in port, a heart that is, has bound itself, done with the compass, done with the chart. And I think that could be a powerful, powerful, powerful statement to the world today for Christians who are done looking and searching. They have found unity with the beloved so yes, I might struggle in traffic, but futile the wind to a heart in port. I'm not looking and I'm not trying to find something else because I've found the fullness of my heart, the, the place where my desires do not come back void. And I, again, I don't say that wagging a finger. I don't say that pretentiously. I don't say that as being better than others. I say that as, oh, what a gift what a gift that God has given us, and what a gift we can share with others. Um, and what a, what a statement that we can collectively make, done with the compass, done with the chart. I say that because I think that's a very important element, that kind of peace. Amen. Lord, let it be so. Lord, may it be manifest in your people. Amen. Asbury is an academic institution mm-hmm. with a spiritual core, how would you, and you may do this already with parents who come and so on, how does Asbury teach holiness? How is it taught at Asbury? Well, it's certainly on a very practical level. It's certainly taught in the classroom. Every student has to take 12 hours of Bible and theology, ethics and philosophy. In our hiring practices, we want to make sure that we emphasize a Wesleyan holiness tradition and that there is a porousness and openness for members who work within this institution to both know and to articulate that understanding of who we are. So there's certainly an academic element where that will show up. We just created a chapel frame this last year to tighten our messages and to more closely correlate and map a message back to an element of our theology. So whether that's heart holiness, whether that's the mind of Christ, whether that is a service mentality or a kingdom understanding of God's community, we, we want to be more deliberate to map a chapel message. But on our best day, <laughs> it shows up in the actions and the activities of the people within the community. Yourself, uh, Doug, you and Marilyn, and how you engage students, how you love them, uh, how you speak into their lives, how you're deliberate to meet with them and love them and listen and guide um, our staff and faculty, how we treat each other, uh, the things we prioritize, the prioritization of the mission, being a student-centric institution over our own considerations about self-preservation, as important as that is, uh, that there are other things that we put forward first. In other words, uh, we can exhibit the mind of Christ in what we do And in our practices, our holistic practices, where we're not just considered about our heart, but also our mind, the practices of a university, 
the norms of truth-seeking, the conditions of truth, how to think carefully and thoughtfully, and then what we do with our hands, what we do with our bodies. We're embodied creatures. These things all matter. So there's a way to talk about holiness and teach about holiness, but I think perhaps the best education is living it out and being a community that uh, demonstrates holiness, because that will sink into students far more than what we might teach in a classroom. And it will make the things taught in a classroom uh, take. Uh, now, now there is, again, a plausibility structure for these ideas. I've been encouraged listening to you and thinking, uh, you know, back in my own life to some of the examples that I've seen of other professors, uh, Paul Vincent, who was here many years mm -hmm. ago, and the way he lived out a holy life in front of me and encouraged me to do that uh, in the classroom. So it's uh, I appreciate uh, your reminders of that. And as we look ahead from here, I think a key question is, that we began with was, why holiness? So let's add a word to it and say, why holiness today? Why is holiness important today? Big question, great question. The best answer I can give, Charles Taylor, I mentioned him earlier, he's a Canadian philosopher. He wrote an incredibly important book called A Secular Age, and was speaking to why was it 500 years ago we, we were largely governed in this like first uh, or second world, to use again the, the reef taxonomy, where there was a transcendent standard. And uh, why 500 years later, we, we almost take those things for granted. Why this huge shift? After he wrote that book, he was asked in an interview, um, so how do, how do you bear witness in a secular age? And he said something to the extent that the, the Christians I know who are most influential, uh, they make that case, they bear witness by what they are, and not simply by the arguments they deploy. I think for our present moment, holiness, the why holiness question, is so that we can make our case on why this is good and right and true, why this is beautiful, why this is an invitation, why this can be compelling, not because of simply what I say. And that's going to make us look a little different. And I think that that's a good thing. I, I love the Flannery O'Connor, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. Stanley Haravos is a, a former theologian at Duke. Uh, his definition of sanctification is sacrifice and service that cannot be accounted for on the world's terms. It's just going to be a little bit head scratching. And so I think so much about God's power in our lives will run counter to the cultural conventions that we see around us. But that means it'll stand out, and that's how we make that case. We make the case by what we are, and not simply by the arguments that we deploy. Now, in another time, we might think of a, a different reason, and there are many reasons why holiness is important. But when I think of our present moment, so that we can be winsome and compelling and add service and add value and be helpful to the world around us. We've gone from periods of time where Christians used to be weird to now they're often viewed as immoral or dangerous. And, um, oh, that breaks my heart. I want to give a message to the world of the value that people of faith can offer, again, in a very compelling way. Wesley says, compel them with all the violence of love. 
And holiness is our invitation to live into the fullness of the life God has for us and to love others violently, serving, sharing in ways that can't be accounted for on the world's terms uh, by our boss. That will speak today, and that's a message worth sharing. May it be so. May it be so. Yeah, thank you very much. Oswald Chambers once wrote to a friend that, quote, holiness is not an attainment at all. It is the gift of God. He makes holy. He sanctifies. He does it all. All I have to do is come as a spiritual pauper, not ashamed to beg, to let go of my right to myself. It is a case of hands up and letting go, and then entire reliance on Him. Belonging and Becoming is a production of Asbury University. We welcome your feedback by contacting us at belong at asbury.edu. May we each learn more in the weeks ahead about God's gift of holiness.